Welcome to the Nutrition on a Mission podcast. I'm Dr. James Giesman, and my co-host is Coach Drew Sams. Together, we bring some of the leading nutritional providers and world-class athletes from across the country who incorporate nutrition either in their practices or day-to-day lives. Our guests share with you their stories of what led them to their passion for nutrition and how you can incorporate some of those practices into your life. Drew, how's it going? Yeah, it's not going too bad. You know, it's a Monday, um, you know, in Iowa, it's nice weather out, you know, in, in the middle of winter, um, we got some 40, 50 degree weather. So I decided to break out the shorts. So, you know, not, you go. haven't been able to do that for a couple months. So it's nice to you know, be able to wear some shorts around. Oh, the weather yesterday was perfect. I was actually finally able to go to the car wash, which around here if it's below 35 they just keep the garage door closed basically and so they finally had it lifted yesterday there was a little bit of a line and so i am pumped the the car is beautified and i am uh, enjoying it that's for sure yeah and, and and along with that you got to enjoy some some steaks on the grill as well i did the first first grill of the season cannot complain cannot complain so hey how are your master's classes going so, so not too bad, um, you know, in the last semester. So, you know, it's all, you know, internship capstone stuff. Um, I had, had a lot of stuff I did over the summer that, you know, I'm going to be able to put towards it. So, um, you know, definitely excited to, you know, finish up strong. The countdown is on. We're what? It's February, about February 6th right now. We have about two and a half months left and you will be graduated again. Again. Yep, that's, that's, that's right. Hopefully first of many, second of many. But anyway, yeah. that's awesome. You know, I can't wait to jump into um, the chat today uh, with our guests. So would you want to introduce them for the uh, audience and listeners? Yeah, that's right, James. Um, I'm excited to welcome our guest today, Dr. Ronald Buffard. Dr. Buffard graduated from Palmer College in 1995, summa cum laude, and has been practicing, has been a practicing chiropractor for 25 years on the coast of Maine. This is where he began his nutrition studies and journey after attending the American Board of Chiropractic Internists Symposium in 2011. He decided to pursue his diplomate. Dr. Buffard has worked with the Pro Health Seminar Group and earned his diplomate in 2017 and continued his educational pursuit, earning his diplomate from the American Clinical Board of Nutrition in 2018. Currently, Dr. Buffard works as a functional medicine provider in Chicago and serves as a director of membership for the ACA Council on Nutrition. Dr. Buffard, welcome. So happy to have you. Thanks. So how's the weather there in Chicago? <laughs> well, it's not that much different from Iowa. We also had the 40-degree yep. day yesterday. Today we'll have 45 degrees. I, too, washed my car, and I'm certainly not wearing pants right now. So <laughs> <laughs> There we go. Perfect. Well, Dr. Buffard, we, besides the uh, little introduction there, can you tell our guests and our listeners – uh, a little bit about yourself. Yeah. So, um, you know, I, I came the non-conventional way into functional medicine. It certainly wasn't, you know, I wasn't out of the womb saying I want to do this. As a matter of fact, my undergraduate degree was in broadcasting and film from Boston University. But uh, when I w- had graduated, I started uh, working uh, on a remote area out on Cape Cod, 
writing a film or a documentary on uh, the demise of the shellfish industry because of this E. coli test that they used to do. And they used mm-hmm. to close them all down. But on Cape Cod, all of the shellfish estuaries are in bird sanctuaries. And so tons of E. coli. So they close them down all the time because with that many migrating birds, you're going to have a lot of E. coli. So they close them down for no reason at all, which really uh, infringed upon the shellfish industry. While I was there, I happened to be doing odd jobs and worked as a carpenter. And my boss one day hurt himself. Uh, Long story short, couldn't raise his arm above his shoulder, couldn't drive the car. Uh, I said, you want me to take you to the hospital? He said, no, take me to a chiropractor. And I'm like, chiropractor? What are they going to do for you? And that was my first introduction to a chiropractor, taking somebody else. And all the while, I went with him to all of his visits, and the chiropractor was a female, and she kept saying, as a chiropractor, I heal nothing. I just help the body heal itself from removing subluxation and allowing the body to heal appropriately. And I thought, that's cool. Um, And at that point in time in my life, I was really big into weightlifting and training and nutrition, and I thought I knew it all, but clearly I didn't. Um, Anyway, I, I then got sick that first winter and I would always get colds and I'd have headaches. And I remember the chiropractor saying, I don't heal anything. I just let, you know, the body heal itself. So I went to see her and I said, I don't know. Uh, I went to this doctor in Boston and they said I had strep throat. They gave me this amoxicillin. and I really don't want to take it. Can you do anything for me? She said, well, give me the chance. She said, how long did they want to put you on amoxicillin? I said, 10 days. She said, give me 10 days. And if I can't resolve it, you can use it. So literally in three days, she adjusted me. She did a toggle Atlas recoil uh, and then gave me information like use some garlic in a you know, clove of garlic smashed in some water and salt to help clear out because I had thrush at the same time. So she said, just do that. Mm-hmm. If you uh, she said, if you get a fever, you know, let the fever burn, but change your clothes and, uh, you know, don't take a fever reducer, just get in a tepid shower to make you feel more comfortable, but the fever is good because it's helping your immune system. So all this was so new to me, but it was sort of in line with sort of what I was doing from my, you know, weightlifting and nutrition. And I'm like, this sounds cool. So discovered the miracle of chiropractic, went through chiropractic school, but I was always focusing on nutrition because I, I love that part of it. Mm-hmm. So when I got out of school in 95 and I went to the coast of Maine, Thought again, I knew it all. Yeah, I've got a nutri- I've got some nutrition ideas. So I started throwing stuff at people while I was adjusting them. And I'd get maybe 50 to 60% better. But some people were just confounding me because I just didn't know what I didn't know. And then, like I said, I, every time I went for continuing education, I always ended up in a symposium, usually with the Council of Nutrition. And uh, one day I... I, I fell into a Brandon Lundell uh, speaker uh, uh, experience that kind of changed my life and understanding how we could use nutrition therapeutically instead of just sort of, you know, oh, if you've got a cold, let's just take some zinc and some echinacea and some vitamin C and you'll get better. Mm -hmm. So when I started to understand that there was a better application, I said, I have to learn this. Problem is I was from the East Coast. All of the, all of the, classes that were given for the diplomates for the DAPSI program were all held in the Midwest or Colorado and far west. And of course, I lived as far east as you could go. So I got a connection with the Kessingers, uh, Virginia Kessinger at ProHealth Seminars, who was the first person to like, oh, yeah, we're going to have a program. Uh, It's going to be in Philly. 
let's get you in there. And so I went to it and she didn't have enough people want to continue it. So she's like, you're going to need to take this course, but it's happening down in uh, Raleigh, Durham, North Carolina. Just go there. So for two and a half years, I flew back and forth from Maine to Raleigh, Durham to do the coursework. Wow. Yeah. So it was quite a commitment, but I was passionate about it at that point to say, this is really where I wanted to go. And uh, I'm glad I did because I got a really good background from the DAPSI program. And of course, as you know, we go through it, sat the board, passed it, what have you. And then they all said, well, you have reciprocity to get the nutrition board. You should do it. You have two years to complete the process. So I did and wrote the paper and passed the board. And so I got the diplomate. That's where I landed. So the problem going back to Maine now is in Maine, Maine's license uh, for chiropractors is very limited scope. It's mainly subluxation based. So we can only adjust. Uh, I couldn't puncture skin, so I couldn't draw blood because that's not within our scope of practice. Uh, I couldn't diagnose anything other than subluxation. So if I was trying to treat somebody for diabetes, it wasn't going to fly. So it was much more difficult for me to practice there. So I had an opportunity uh, through a mutual friend of ours uh, that kind of introduced me to the scope of practice in Illinois is a bit broader. And so I can come here and I can actually work doing the nutrition work that I want to do uh, and be really successful at it and then use insurance as a basis of getting people in to see me. And it's been very good. I've been here for three years and and, uh, I can honestly say that I'm very happy with the choices that I made. So it's a long-winded story, but it's a cool one in terms like I, I never really meant to be here. But I do love what I do. I love that I can teach people very simple ways of either using food or nutrients as a way of making themselves better. Because more often than not, they've never been really introduced to that concept. Right. No, absolutely. You're not going to. Well, that's great. You know, we actually met um, at the symposium in Florida a couple years ago. And so I think I know what uh, what mutual friend we're talking about. Um I didn't realize she was the one that brought you out to Chicago, though. Well, again, a different story. But when, when before she actually came to work for this company that I'm working for with her, uh, she had her own functional practice. Uh, and she had just finished her med school degree and was going to go and do two years of uh residency. And so when she was going to do her residency, she was going to not be practicing. And so I was planning on coming in and taking over her practice uh, while she did that. But in essence, what happened is she chose this path and closed her practice. And then she said, I think you might like to work here. So it was a little bit of negotiation because um, it's, I'm, I'm not the standard profile, I think, of I'm definitely one of the oldest providers that they have on this team. Uh, the, okay. the company that I work for has a, a, lot, a lot of clinics in Chicago. They got 19. Um, when I started, they only had 15. So, of course, I started in January of 2020. And then, of course, COVID happened. What a, what a time to start a new career, right? Luckily for me, I was at least contracted. So they had to at least pay my bills while they tried to figure out like right. how to utilize me. Uh, but it all worked out in the end. I have a really robust practice now. Um, again, the, the concept that they're trying to do here 
is to become a nationwide sort of group uh, practice that they can offer all the services. We do chiropractic, acupuncture, massage therapy, nutrition, functional uh, medicine. Uh, the only thing we really don't have is a psychiatric side of it, but I think it's a great uh, combination. I don't know about you, but when I came out of school, my intent was to have a big health clinic that was going to incorporate chiropractic, acupuncture, massage, nutrition, so physical therapy. So this is exactly what they have done. They have a pretty decent uh, paradigm and a pretty good focus. So I didn't have to recreate anything. And the nice thing is, is I don't own it. After owning my own business for 25 years, Right. I'm like, you know what? I don't really need to be the chief cook and bottle washer anymore. I don't mind coming in and just being the functional medicine provider that I want to be. Let somebody else deal with you know, right. dealing with the federal government and collecting from insurance and all that other stuff. So what's the what's the typical day or week look like? I mean, you know, are you in the practice? Are you doing televisits? Did that have anything to do with COVID? Like, Yeah. So, um, so I started working five days a week in a clinic um, because at that time there really wasn't that much uh, traction with, of course, telemedicine. Of course, when COVID did happen, we went completely remote. Uh, So at first it was kind of foreign to most people. Uh, We weren't sure about like how we were going to get paid. So there was still a lot of questions about it at the time. But um, in time, of course, everything started to fall into place. I now have uh, a hybrid situation where currently I work three days a week out of the clinic and two days a week from home. I work uh, eight-hour days of FaceTime with patients, and then I usually do three to four hours outside of patient work, answering emails, or you know, ordering blood, uh, ordering full script orders, those kinds of things reviewing uh, cases or plans as to what I'm going to be doing next. So it's a lot of work, but it's it's quite re- rewarding. Uh, on an average day, I see anywhere between uh, 10 to 14 patients. So it's a lot. It really okay. depends on uh, when I do a new patient intake, it's an hour-long visit. If I do a report of finding, it's an hour-long visit. And then a lot of follow-ups are only half hours. Mm-hmm. So it really is driven by... How many new patients, how many reported findings I'm doing, whether I'll see just eight people or whether I'll see 16 people. So, so is your, um, you know, is the current practice, is it cash based or are you, um, you know, accepting insurance? I know, you know, in Iowa, you know, it seems like accepting insurance for, you know, nutrition based um, practice is, you know, a little less common. So just kind of wanted to see what, Yeah, so Illinois, because the Illinois Chiropractic Association's um, licensure division is really under the Illinois Medical Association. So as long as we've studied it in school, we can do it. So Illinois is one of those states that does allow us to order blood, does allow us to interpret blood as long as you've had coursework on phlebotomy and laboratory interpretation. Um, mm-hmm. So it's it's a lot more fluid than where Maine was pretty much just a kind the Maine state uh, laws restricted me only to subluxation only. So I could only use subluxation 
diagnoses. That's really the biggest difference. In Illinois, as long as I am um, documenting and can prove medical um, warranting, uh, basically, then they allow me to go ahead and diagnose stuff like diabetes. The coding we use is pretty much just uh, timed visits. So we get paid for the time visits. Some of the blood work, depending on which insurance company we're working with, gets paid and some of it not. So it all depends on on uh, the different insurance companies. But it's a little more open, which is also the reason why I came here to Illinois, aside from, you know, the original circumstance of me supposed to be taking somebody's practice over and just working differently. It just was a better opportunity. So I don't know what the state law in Iowa is. I don't know. Is it just subluxation based there or... Are you allowed to do venipuncture? Are you allowed to do... Yeah, so we started Iowa Performance Institute. So it's an all online um, nutritional and fitness practice. So we started that last summer. Um, so, you know, I don't do any sort of venipunctures because we don't have an office. Um, we do, you know, there's a lot of good um, testing companies out there. So like there's a lot of tests. Uh-huh. We do a lot of food sensitivities. Uh-huh. So individuals who want food sensitivities or are looking for... Uh, you know, the gut microbiome, because mm-hmm. that's a big one right now. I think that's definitely the frontier that we're currently in, mm-hmm. um, looking at the gut and, you know, gut dysbiosis. And it's just fascinating. I think every single podcast we've gotten onto the gut dysbiosis somehow, and I still am just, I geek out about it. So <clears throat> that's what we typically do. So it's a lot of, you know, some of those companies can now drop ship to patients. They just need the signed order. Um, so that's pretty, pretty interesting. Um, but yeah, you know, I was, I grew up in the era where if you wanted blood done, you had to come into an office, you had to go through phlebotomy and all that stuff. And, and yeah, we were taught that in school, but it's not something I've actually had to do in practice. I did way more venipunctures as a paramedic than I did in my Cairo career so far. Yeah. So, uh, are you seeing? Well, what I was going to say is, uh, we also do the specialty testing, like you're speaking of the yeah. stool testing and. We do a lot of salivary collection and we certainly do food sensitivities. That's blood. Uh, the, the benefit we have is because we have 19 clinics. We basically hired phlebotomists to work for us. And then we have a company uh, through something called Aurora Health, which is one of the major hospitals here in the Chicagoland area that we have contracted with to get rates for our blood work. So I can run blood panels, you know, CBC, CMP, inflammatory markers, I can run hormones, I can do all that, and then have it covered by insurance as long as it's insurance that we are, you know, sort of a provider with. Uh, And then the specialty testing all gets, that's all out of pocket. So for us, it's kind of a blend of, you know, getting the necessary uh, blood markers that we're looking for. Uh, And then if I want to do specialty testing, I will, you know, go further. I tell all of my patients because of this special situation, I start with blood work. That's all going to be covered by the insurance just to be able to get a really good panel. And then if I find anything that's exemplary out of that blood work is when I will start to address, you know, stool testing or food sensitivity or salivary hormonal testing or a Dutch test or whatever the specialty test that we're going to be looking at. So in a given week, like how many people do you think utilize the specialty testing? Is that something that you tend to order a lot of or is it? Hmm. 
any kind of truly specialty? Uh, so in this instance, um, what I always tell patients is uh, because it costs money out of their pocket to buy the specialty testing, uh, I try to be mindful of when I can pull the trigger or not. So on a get average given week, um, I probably maybe do out of the 30 to 40 patients that I see, I might do 10 specialty tests, but that's usually after I've identified something from the blood work that tells me like, oh, you've got a high eosinophilic level and that might be indicative of parasites. And so let's do a stool test with parasites to determine whether or not that's the case. And sometimes, like you said, uh, I would say about 60% of, of the people that I bring into the practice as new patients usually have a gut dysbiosis. I do a lot of uh, candida antibody testing in the blood work, and okay. I see that uh, probably four out of every 10 patients that I see. Wow. They're the same people who come in complaining about bloat and constipation. So, Dr. Bufar, we're going to switch gears a little bit. Um, I know we talked about um, you know you being on the ACA board. Could you tell our listeners a little bit about what you do on the ACA yeah, board? Yeah, so nutrition? currently I so I've transitioned. Currently, I am now uh, the membership chair. So basically, what I'm doing is a keeping the membership list available or accessible, making sure everybody's information is up to date. So that's the first part of it. Uh, go, going forward, I'm looking for other people of the chiropractic profession who might be interested in becoming a member. Um, I personally think the Council of Nutrition is one of our stronger elements because it is sort of the, um, it is the application part of the board where we're actually doing most of the continuing ed and a lot of the resources that you get that connect with the ACA directly. Um, so you you have legislative uh, ramifications on that side. Uh, so you've always got people looking out for us and making sure that we're going to continue to be at the forefront of dealing with uh, treating patients from a nutritional standpoint. Uh, the other thing I like about the Council of Nutrition is that it's open to not just chiropractors, it's open to nutritionist and dentist and anybody really who has an interest in nutrition in their practice. So the other part of my job really is to find these people from different uh, aspects and determine if they might be interested in becoming part of this growing group. Uh, I really like the group of people in the Council of Nutrition because, well, the members specifically, because they are from varied um, teaching. So you're not just getting one side of a story. You're seeing other people's applications, which to me helps us all understand better how to utilize nutrition in a much more global way. So there's that part of it. Um, and there's a really great camaraderie there. There's a lot of really, really smart people, smarter than me for sure, who, uh, who really focus a lot of their life and a lot of their intention on just the understanding and the complexity of the biochemistry behind the nutrition, which is kind of what I geek out about, which is why every time I did continuing ad for the last 28 years now, it's always been nutrition based because it always fascinates me to learn uh, about more about the biochemistry behind it. So uh, I guess to wrap it up, I will say that 
my uh, role in the Council of Nutrition as the membership chair is really to encourage more people who might be interested or, uh, or at least introduce other people, whether it be students, whether it be uh, from different professions, people that might be interested in joining this community. So we're not just chiropractors. Uh, like I said, we're from all walks of life. And as long as we all have a, a, an interest in how we can use clinical nutrition as a way of treating people, this is a good um, this, is a, this is a good council or a good group to be a member of. Absolutely. You know, I'm kind of partial to the director of membership. So that is the that's the position that has led us to where we are today. So in case you didn't know, that's where I was before being secretary and treasurer. <laughs> and so that's <clears throat> Drew's comment one day in the office about how, hey, y'all should have a podcast. For the <laughs> well, here we are. This has come full circle. <laughs> it does come full circle. Yeah. This is all Drew's fault. So, <laughs> so yeah, I mean, that was actually one of the ways that we thought we could reach more members, reach some students. And so for any students that are listening, especially if you're in Cairo school and you're about to graduate or looking for a, you know, a, a subspecialty or a group to, you know, join and come with, by all means, reach out to Dr. Buffard. Um, we'd love to have you. We're I'm biased, but I mean, we're a great group of people. <laughs> Although I just went to Engage. I just got back from Engage two weeks ago, and so I had the opportunity of meeting some of the other councils. So I feel, I'm, I'm hoping if they're listening, they're not taking any offense. I love your specialties too. I just think ours is, <laughs> here we yeah, are. We have you know, podcast, I, so. <laughs> I, and let's face it, you know, we all have a niche to fit. Right. So I totally agree that there are plenty of other really great specialties uh, you know, the interesting thing is I, 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 I wasn't really sure what I was supposed to do as far as the diplomate of chiropractic internist versus clinical nutrition, but how it was described to me when I first was kind of looking through it was that in the internist program, you learn how to diagnose and you'll learn a little bit of protocols, but you don't necessarily get taught the nutritional side of how that all works from a pharmaceutical or a nutraceutical sort of way. And so when I took the nutrition board, I was a little bit more concerned because some of the, some of the things we just didn't get taught uh, in the internist, but me being the geek I am, I overachieve. And so I really went and learned everything that I could and got myself to where I'm at. But I really like going to nutrition uh, conferences simply because I think I get I, I understand the application and I understand the chiropractic internist side, although, you know, things change all the time. I like learning about new um, testing. I'll be going this weekend to Las Vegas for a, a conference on testing, uh, which will be really interesting. And then um, I, I just think it's a really great opportunity to learn the biochemistry if you're that kind of person who has a really good fundamental understanding of why we need zinc in our life, for instance. Right. So this is where you learn that. And this is where you can get some really great speakers who really can just kind of explain it to you in a very easy way to be able to apply it in everyday practice. Oh, I, I agree. I remember last symposium we were at, you know, just seeing some students show up to the symposium, which was great. I mean, Drew was there. Drew was just starting out his master's career. Um, and so, I mean, 
oftentimes, you know, everyone thinks continuing eds is going to be, you know, boring and dry. And I, I, that's definitely not what I thought. And, but I'm one of those that likes to geek out on research, which is, you know, exactly why I'm going to transition to give you the spotlight here. So Drew and I had a chance to read your paper from um, when you, you know, became a <laughs> diplomat. So yeah. the herbal products for the treatment of chronic Lyme disease published in Nutritional Perspectives. So let's talk about that a little bit, if you don't mind, because I mean, being from the Midwest, I mean, I grew up in Mississippi. I've lived in Illinois since I was 10. I've lived you know, here in Iowa since 2017. We're familiar with ticks. I mean, you know, I talk about it in first aid. We, I always reference the Brad Paisley song. <laughs> so, I mean, we're familiar with ticks, right? So can you talk just how did you get involved in that research? How did you, how did, how did that find you? Wow. Okay. <laughs> so another interesting story. <laughs> That's what we're all about. So, here. We love um, yeah. So first of all, of course, in Maine, a lot of people with Lyme's disease. And the unfortunate thing is the medical model really just doesn't work. So um, when I was studying for the Dabsey boards back in Maine, uh, my house that I live in, we had a, a, a rental that we used as a vacation rental. And there was a gentleman and his wife uh, sitting up there. And I'm going to have to look up his name again because I always forget it. Um, and now you put me on the spot here and this is where I'm going to go look for it. <laughs> so good. Dr. Rawls. Dr. Rawls, who is a obstetrician, uh-huh. he ended up with Lyme disease as an obstetrician and it almost killed him. So um, he and his wife were staying in my apartment and I was studying out on my back deck and he and his wife would come back and forth and they'd come back from a kayaking trip on one of the rivers in my town. And uh, he said, so what are you studying? And I said, well, I'm studying to be a, a, a diplomate, a, a chiropractic intern studying functional medicine. He sat down next to me. He's like, oh, he said, let me tell you my story. So he had Lyme disease, almost shut down his practice, went the, uh, the standard route got really sick, discovered that there was uh, definitely better options with Chinese medicine and herbs because the problem with most uh, Borrelia anyway is that they kind of go into this hibernative kind of cyst form and they can outlast the doxycycline that they give you. And you can only take doxycycline for so long before it makes you sick, so you have to stop. And meanwhile, it might not have killed the Borrelia. And now if it wasn't killed, it's now resistant, which is what happens with most chronic Lyme disease patients. And so in his research, what he discovered was that when we use, uh, when we use nutraceuticals, when we use botanicals, because they have buffering agents, they can actually be utilized for longer in an open treatment um, and have more effectiveness, although it will be more gentle. So it's not going to be nearly as disastrous of effect of having to take doxycycline for two months, which for most people would end up killing their microbiome and just making them actually sicker. So um, that's what he, you know, he had started this whole process. He was doing a lecturing circuit. He was in Maine because he was actually going to be going to Cape Cod, uh-huh. Nantucket Island. He was going for a conference there to discuss Lyme disease. And I thought, okay, well, 
how cool that I met him. And literally the next year there was a conference in Maine of Lyme disease and I went to it and lo and behold, who's the keynote speaker, but Dr. Rawls, who I approached and I'm like, Hey, do you remember me? And he's like, yeah, you're the guy who has that really cool apartment in Brook Bay Harbor. So, um, it all came full circle. And at that point, like I said, I was still studying in the diplomate and then I got really involved because I had a few patients that were Lyme disease patients. Mm -hmm. And, um, what I've discovered is uh, quite a few things. First of all, the problem with Lyme disease, we all know is that, Hey, there's no really good test to affirm whether or not you actually have Lyme disease. We can try using titers. We can try using all sorts of, but we don't ever really get a hundred percent. There's no accurate test. So there's that. Secondly, because the treatments are limited and because nobody dies from it, theoretically, mm-hmm. There's no impetus to, to actually try to create a pharmaceutical that will actually fix this. Um, so really, the one thing that we have going for us is really Chinese medicine, where if you do a Google search, really, on the effects uh, of using botanicals or Chinese medicine or herbals to treat, there's a ton of information on it. Mm-hmm. Um, but because it's nutraceuticals and botanicals, the medical world just doesn't you know, look that direction at all, and they only use their doxycycline treatment. So if people are stuck or pigeonholed in the medical world, they're they're probably always going to be dealing with some form. Now, the only time it's really ever good is if it's a acute uh, infection. They got bit by a tick. They saw the bite. Sometimes the bullseye shows up. Sometimes it doesn't, which again is another one of those like, well, we don't really know. And if you don't get the tick uh, completely, or if you you just get the body of the tick, but the head is in there, it's still giving off venom, but you still got a problem. So, you know, if you give them doxycycline within that first couple of days of an infection, it might be able to kill because the other thing about uh, tick-borne diseases like this is the saliva and the tick actually stops your immune system from actually allowing it to kill. So it's just allowing it to spread easier. So it's a really malicious disease. Uh, Unfortunately, many people go down the wrong path. And, you know, when I went to that conference in Maine that uh, Dr. Rawls was the head note speaker of, uh, there were several people there, like, you know, in wheelchairs who had been that, uh, you know, affected by their chronic Lyme, which at that point, we, you know, it's harder for us to kind of reverse the symptoms. But I was happy to be able to see that there were plenty of options. And really, the long and short of of what uh, Rawls's uh, protocol is, is he says, you know, you should use something botanically, but it, beyond a, a six to eight weeks of treatment, you should probably change it mm-hmm. if they still have symptoms. You can keep testing for it, but the antibodies will show up um, 50% of the time, maybe not. So it's kind of one of those things where you just kind of treat patients and treat them for their co-infections and what really is going on. And so that was the focus of my paper was that we have a better solution at really helping people resolve sort of the chronic issues that they can have by letting them understand that even though the standard medicinal practice is there, it's not very helpful if it's beyond, you know, some of my patients never knew they had uh, Lyme disease Mm -hmm. until four or five years later. Yeah. When they started showing up all these symptoms. And so when it's that late into the, into their, process, you really sort of have to deal with the inflammation. And then you also have to try to deal with knocking down the 
the the parasite itself. So what would the typical treatment protocol for you be? I mean, if we're six to eight weeks is our, you know, general start, and then we got to change it up. Like, what do you usually start it with? Because I mean, you talked about some great uh, herbal remedies in here. And I mean, I'm sure we're going to talk about a couple, but like, what do you usually start with? One, two, all of them? Yeah, so I'll do one, depending on whether it's more inflammatory that they're complaining about, uh, will really depend on which one. But I'll usually start with one or two, sometimes with garlic or cat's claw. And then uh, I might go with something, uh, you know, I like using, for people who have neurologic issues, I like using the mushrooms uh, more so. So it really depends on the presentation. And I'll usually do one or two of the herbals. And like I said, we'll keep them on them for a good six to eight weeks. And if their symptom that they're complaining about has resolved, then I will usually just keep them on a more broad-based sort of antimicrobial um, that has a blend of, and there are several, you know, really good antimicrobial uh, blends that we know of. I don't know. Are we allowed to tell talk about brand names and stuff like that? We're not sponsored by anybody, so feel free. Yeah. So with me, it's usually biocidin that I will usually use as a good formula to keep them on again for another eight weeks or so. And until I really see improvement with both the white blood cell recovery and uh, if their eosinophils were elevated and if their symptoms are improved, then I'll have them come off of it and we'll wait and see whether or not it comes back again. The problem with any kind of chronic disease, I always tell people, you have a chronic disease. We'll always be dealing with it. It's just a matter of how to manage it better so that we won't uh, keep flaming you up, uh, you know, or flaring it up and then having to like go right back to square one. So I'm, I'm assuming you saw a lot more cases when you were in Maine than you currently do now. Right. Yeah. Absolutely. We have, we have people from here who uh, are from the East Coast who have been exposed somehow, some way. And there are definitely a few people uh, in the woodlands of Wisconsin, you know, people who have been traveling somewhere and have probably been exposed that way usually. But you're right. It's a much rarer experience. I don't think you guys don't have a lot of Lyme per se. In no, just, I, I mean, just a lot of, you know, deer ticks, um, but not a lot carrying right. um, Lyme disease. I actually looked Earlier. it up because I was curious because, yeah. I mean, Illinois. So in undergrad, this is why when I saw your paper on ticks, I just thought, well, this is just a meant to be conversation. So talking about stories, my senior year of undergrad, I had a anatomy professor at the college that I went to in Illinois, and we decided to do some tick research. And I don't know if you all know, but you can actually order ticks in all stages of life directly online and they can ship to you and they come in now. Drew might not know, but film used to come in little canisters, right? So that's how all the little ticks are like sent to you. And you pop that open and they scatter. Like I can tell you just a little tip, put it in the freezer for about 10 minutes just to calm them down. And then you can like do what you need to do. But we were doing some essential oil research on actually repellents for ticks. And Drew knows, I mean, I'm a hot blooded individual, just, I mean, I have a fan on right now. My offices, I went to his a couple of days ago. I was like, man, it's hot in here. <laughs> My instructor, the uh, person I was doing this with, she had actually, she liked to sew. She had sewn together a felt, a white felt jumpsuit 
that I had to wear and tromp around the fields of central Illinois trying to collect ticks. And let me tell you, it worked, but even at 8 o'clock in the morning, it was one of the hottest little outfits I have ever had. Oh, my goodness. Felt in the morning was not what I needed. I'm just glad it wasn't the heat of the day. <laughs> uh, they are jumpers. They definitely, um, of course, um, you probably know that, you know, there's a different vector. Deer, you know, the deer tick is really one of the ones that is more prone for the Lyme disease, but we also have field mice. Uh, here, what they do, they don't have to wear a jumpsuit. They literally just take a big sheet of, uh, back in Maine, I should say, they wear, they take a big sheet that's white and they just literally run it over the sort of meadowland grasses because that's usually where they are or in thick pine needles or wherever. And then by the time that you've just sort of sort of grazed over a good like 10 or 15 foot swath of it, you probably have a good hundred ticks on it. That's how... I, I definitely got to carry that behind me as well. It was one of those things where it was more of making sure the ticks weren't on me as well, easily identified. But gotcha. yeah, I got to I got to carry that sheet with me too. <laughs> so, what did you discover about sort of the essential oils? Were there anything that was really good? Yeah, so, we mean or you know, we tried everything from um, some lemongrass was in there. Um, but the main one, which is actually something that people will use for lice, uh, tea tree oil. So tea tree oil, and you know, there's actually some research out there about tea tree oil, but it's um, a very good one. And so people, you know, it's it's a remedy for um, head lice. So if you know you're you got little kids who are going to preschool, kindergarten, all the way up to any class nowadays, it seems like um, a lot of shampoos have started to put tea tree oil in there. Uh, you know, I think it smells good. Obviously, it's not just straight tea tree. It smells good, but right. it's actually acting as a repellent. So, you know, it's just it's just giving your body one more way of not to get it. I mean, I'm not saying right. if I lay, you know, in the our school, it used to be the old beanbag chairs, like during reading time, like you could sit there, and that's that was like the vector for all head lice. It seemed like like that was ground zero for everything, but. You know, if I already have some teacher oil on me and it, maybe I'm not the one that the lice decide to gravitate towards. So that was our best. Yeah. Um, yeah. So it's funny because I use tea tree oil as a topical for a lot of, yep. uh, especially the people with the yeast infection, mm -hmm. sometimes uh, ringworm, those kinds of things yep. as a treatment. So I didn't realize it could be used as an application as a repellent. Yep. So it's interesting to know that it can be done. You know, it's a dual purpose. And so if so, you watch, like if you have your patients watch um, when they go to the you know grocery store or wherever they buy, you know, shampoo and conditioner, a lot of them now, and I say a lot, I mean, I don't know, half, half of what I've seen, it seems like will have a tea tree oil, element to it so yeah i i actually like dr bronner's uh and i use the dr bronner's tea tree oil shampoo and body wash pretty much almost exclusively so it's interesting that i've kind of come to that yeah. conclusion now that i'm not living in maine i don't have to worry about the ticks as much <laughs> exactly yeah. so so dr buffard we talked a little bit earlier about you know the gut and you know you mentioned you know the people using these antibiotics um, and the microbial resistance that's, you know, coming from it, how often were you seeing patients that, you know, got to this stage with these antibiotics and then they were coming to you 
And then at that point where you're now having to try to rebuild the microbiome while also trying to treat, you know, the Lyme disease. So, um, so yes. So uh, the, the answer to the first question, I think somewhere, I would have to say about 60 to 70% of the people that I see in my practice here right now in Chicago are usually a gut problem that is being expressed in whatever symptom they're having. Sometimes yep. it's as simple as ADHD, believe it or not, because that's common. You know, it's that gut brain mm-hmm. uh, connection that happens. If you've got a sludgy yep. gut, you're going to have definitely inflammation that's going to cross the blood brain barrier and cause a lot of these ADHD mechanisms. And then here in Chicago, <laughs> We have a lot of anxious people. Let's just say that. Uh, <laughs> as I was referring to you guys earlier and saying, here in Maine, when I drive, I drive the speed limit and everybody's flying past me and giving me the bird and, and uh, you know, blaring their horns because they're in a rush to get everywhere because they're just like city folk who they're just so focused and everything has to be fast. So I find that a lot. And I think a lot of it is gut. Um, so here's the reality is the minute that you have either a parasite or if you've done too many antibiotics where you've broken down the microbiome, I tell people the microbiome is kind of like your suit of armor for your gut. So the minute that that gets breached, um, you can get problems. You start inflammation. This is where yeast accumulates because yeast is not a prevailing, uh, it's not usually the it's not usually the disease that's causing the problem. It's I tell people yeast is like mushrooms that grow in the forest. They only grow on the dead trees. So as soon as there's been a breach of your microbiome, your intestinal lining is somewhat sort of um, compromised. And then because we eat yeast, drink yeast, uh, have it living around us all the time, the yeast find this nice little sort of damaged tissue and they're like, oh, here's a nice warm, dark spot for us to grow. And as long as you keep feeding it sugar, which, you know, we don't have that in our American diet too much. So then it becomes overgrown. Some of the bacteria can, if you're, it's another thing I find people do a lot. They start doing a lot of probiotics. And I think doing too much probiotic can actually throw your system into the overgrowth problem, which I see a lot of. So people come in and they have bloat and they have gas and they have, you know, constipation and they're irritable and, you know, they're anxious and all these things. And usually if I run a blood test and I see a couple of things, usually in the CBC, the differential is going to look a little wanky when it's yeast. And then I run candidal antibodies. And when I see that, I'm like, okay, so we've got something causing damage to your microbiome. I don't know if it was the overuse of antibiotics. Uh, If it looks like there's a bacterial compromise from the differential, then I might run a stool test to see what is the bacterial culture looking like. Is it not enough good bacteria, too too much bad bacteria, their yeast overgrowth? I will treat that. And then once I know that I've eradicated it, I will then rebuild the intestinal lining by, I, I, I tell people this analogy I use is a golf course lawn. And that um, your microbiome is sort of like that lush green lawn and somebody's come by and either mowed it too close on one side and killed this grass in this one patch. And then the crab grass and the dandelion start showing up in the middle of this, you know, beautiful golf course. So we need to go in and we need to spray down the uh, crab grass and the dandelions. I usually use some sort of, if it's, if it's yeast, I'll use a, 
anti-candidal or antifungal. Sometimes it's tea tree oil, but more often than not, it's usually grapefruit seed extract or uh uh, there's a bunch of, I use a product called Candidex, which I really like from Apex, which is probably my favorite. Um, I'll eradicate the yeast. Once I've done that, I'll then lay down some L-glutamine and some, um, some butyrate, and then I'll give them a probiotic for about two months and it'll regrow their good bacteria. And if we've done our job, we've replanted the corner of the golf course where, it was all burnt out. I've laid down the butyrate and the glutamate, which is, I tell people, the new soil and the miracle grow. And then the probiotic is really just the grass seed. We give it a couple of months of growth and hopefully it'll crowd everything else out and their gut will usually be better. If it solely was just gut formation. And I would say about eight times out of 10, it's usually enough for us to sort of get everything back into order. Sometimes it's something completely different. When it's a parasite, the problem with parasites I talked about the cyst form a little bit. They kind of go into hibernation. So they're harder to kill if they're in that cyst form. So you have to be patient and you have to make sure that you're doing the treatment for a longer period of time. And I usually will do a treatment and I'll have them do something as simple as like raw uh, pumpkin seed, which has this uh, sort of natural anti-parasitic. Um, so I usually tell them, you know, add it to your salads or grind it up and put a couple of tablespoons in your smoothie because uh, as an antiparasitic and uh, also fiber, that will sort of help to kind of clean the gut out. But that's a longer term. And I'll tell you, the reason I learned about pumpkin seed is because a thousand years ago, one of my first dogs I had had worms. And when I went to my, uh, (laughs) when I went to my vet, my vet was like, oh, you need to give them flagell. I'm like, well, I'm not going to do that. So then I looked up that there's this guy, his name is Dr. Pitcairn. He's a natural veterinarian and he had this anti-parasitic treatment of, they have to be raw pumpkin seeds or pepitas. And uh, he said, just grind them up, put them on their food and it will kill them. And sure enough, it did. So it's a great little tip. How long did that take? For the dogs, about a week, actually. Um, They didn't seem to mind it. I just ground it up, put it on their food. And about a week later, the bowels turned back to normal. I didn't see any more worms and we were done. Yeah. So sure. for, for like one of your patients, like what's that, how long is that typical protocol? So when a patient has a parasite and they know they have a parasite, they'll do the papitas for as long as they're going to, as long as they're okay. having sort of, you know, <laughs> not so great stool. Mm-hmm. Um, but I usually do about four to six weeks of, you know, somehow yeah. encouraging it. And they usually don't mind it because it's pumpkin seeds. You can either put it in a smoothie right. or put it on your salad, which is the two ways that I usually do it. So, so are you having them go buy a pumpkin and car, you know, carve the seeds out of it? <laughs> Whole food was selling in their bulk session, organic, in their bulk section, uh, organic uh, raw pumpkin seeds, pepitas. You can find it pretty much anywhere. Yeah. Although, you know, you could, do us, the, we would ha- you, you could do the pumpkin. We would have to go to Hy-Vee. <laughs> oh, you have to go to the Hy-Vee? Yeah, I don't know if the Hy-Vee. <laughs> I'm not sure where. I don't I think it's you got to wait till October and buy a, yeah. a pumpkin. <laughs> you can get it on Amazon. <laughs> um, so you you talked about like the the gut and you're getting a lot of anxious people. Uh-huh. I'm assuming along with that anxiety, you're you seeing a lot of adrenal and cortisol issues. <laughs> yes, of course, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. So uh, I do test cortisol with every patient of mine. 
Okay. Uh, I test their B vitamins uh, pretty much with the with the first with my first run. I always do a CBC, a CMP, a lipid profile, a urine, and then I do inflammatory markers. Uh, I'll do like zinc, magnesium. I will do selenium, iodine. Iodine is really, really. I think you guys have the same problem that we do. I suspect you have a lot of uh, subclinical iodine deficiency thyroids. So when I moved here, I started doing uh, thyroid panels with people and started seeing these really wacky numbers. Now I'm from Maine where I never saw a thyroid problem because we live right by the sea. And all of the iodine that we're talking about all comes from the sea. So I didn't remember this until I remembered some of the studies I was reading about the upper Midwest and Morton's iodized salt. And the reason why they iodized the salt is because this was the goiter belt of the country. Everybody had goiters because where, where's the nearest sea? It's 1,500 miles away. I also see it in uh, sodium with all of my patients here. I, when I run a CMP, I see sodium almost nine times out of 10 deficient which again, it's just, it's not in our topsoil, it's not in our water. Unlike in Maine, when, you know, we didn't have to worry about the salt because we were right there at the sea and we always got it. So these are just really interesting things that I learned through moving here. And so when I see thyroid problems, sometimes there's a cortisol problem. When I see cortisol problems, I always use an ashwagandha blend. Uh, and if they have estrogen issues, which oftentimes if it's the women who are usually also complaining about hormonal issues, I'll run that. And I, I use a blend of, um, uh, it has ashwagandha, rhodiola, Siberian ginseng, maca. Um, the product I, I use um, is um, not cortisol manager. It's called uh, HPA Adapt integrative therapeutics. I love that as a core, as a adrenal uplifter. Can't tell you how many people don't sleep well, don't wake up well. Yeah. They're always grumpy and then they're super, super stressed through the day. Yeah, I can definitely, you know, find the relation to that with my athletes, like throughout, you know, every, every day, you know, walking into practice, grumpy, um, especially with, you know, during, you know, closer to final season. And then you also get, you know, a little bit of weight loss, cutting weight in wrestlers. So, you know, that's definitely something that yeah. you know, I see on a daily basis. Yeah. So of course you may already know too, that the adrenal and the thyroid both require a ton of protein. So when you're cutting, like you're talking about, they yep. tend to see the, the, you know, the diet goes south. And when you do that, so do all the plants. So the irony is, is I have a ton of people here who like to do HIIT training and like to do intermittent fasting. And when yep. I see their cortisol is low and their protein is low and their sodium is low, you know, they're usually dehydrated. So I'm talking to them about like, okay, we need to increase your hydration. We need to make sure that you get electrolytes and then you need to cut back on your high intensity training. If you're doing heavy weights, you need to do light weights with higher reps instead of heavy weights and low reps because that's where you right. cause the inflammation yep. but they always struggle with that you know because it's so opposite of what every trainer wants to tell them mm -hmm. drew and i have harked over the last probably two years a lot about the dehydration in the mm. it's like i have drew is that true like i mean i think that's like my one go-to well what's your hydration yep. like what's your electrolytes yep. like, like 
for the first two years, I mean, we had a couple guys who had to go for exertional rhabdo. I mean, they were put, you know, kept a couple guys were kept in the hospital and it just became something that I tried to harp on so much. And then Drew has done a really good job this year of trying to talk about, um, you know, how do we cut the right way? I mean, we know it's a cutting sport. Like there is no question about it. And we know that the athletes are going to do it, but how do we cut appropriately? Right. If you actually eat a proper diet, you can go in and you can lose the weight that you need to. The problem is we're talking college athletes, right? We're talking athletes who want to wait until the four days before. Oh, you know what? I got nine pounds to lose, but I can lose seven in a practice. So I'm fine. And I don't know how many times I have to tell them you're not losing seven right. pounds of fat. It's just not happening. Yep. Yeah. So if you don't do a CMP, how would you be able to show them their uh, sodium deficiencies? How do you do right. that? So I see it all the time. So that that's why for me, it's an easy sell. It's also the reason why I do the blood work because I think the black and white numbers on a page don't lie. I like, look, I'm, you know, here it is. You can see your sodium is at 134 and you should be at least 140 to 144. So when that's the case, you're working out too much, you're sweating too much, you're either or you're dehydrated from vomit or from diarrhea, which sometimes is the case, uh, or you're over consuming water without replacing the electrolytes. Because when you do that, now you're also just thinning out the extracellular sodium and causing, you know, the, the watershed to happen. And you feel cruddy. People always tell me that um, when they when they start getting yeah. their electrolytes back into the normal, it's amazing how many of them say, oh, my God, I didn't realize like how much better I could feel with just doing something as simple as. So I have them sometimes do noon tablets if they are the kind of people who don't like the salt flavor. But I also say, you know, a quarter teaspoon of table salt mm -hmm. in a glass of water um, every day. And then especially if you're exercising or working out or training you know, after just to replenish that, which you've lost, but you're right. Athletes are Definitely. the athletes are the hard sell because it's not what they're programmed to believe. Right. Yep. It's just not what the they're stubborn. Well, it's, it's, it's the, the problem I think is this, is that there's a lot of, when I, when it comes to sports nutrition, I think there's a lot of really poor information that again, isn't, um, necessarily geared to that particular athlete. And it could be just stuff they're reading on the internet or through a men's fitness magazine. And they're not actually sp speaking to somebody who is a sports nutrition counselor who knows a little bit more about nutrition, like what you guys do and what I do. So it, it's always a hard sell because they're like, well, that's not what my trainer says to do. And I have to say, well, how much does your trainer know about nutrition? And then normally, if they know anything about nutrition, it's something that they've learned that, again, was biased and just like, you know, it's that calorie in, calorie out thing that people seem to think like that's the golden ticket. And you're like, well, not all calories are the same and not everybody's body requires that certain amount of calorie. Yep. Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's definitely been what I would say is a three-year process getting our wrestlers to learn, you know, how to start trying to do it the right way. At first, it was just hydration. We've got to have you hydrated. Then it was, you know, how much are you intaking? What are you intaking? And now it's what supplements can we add? So we, we've kind of started to develop more of a um, protocol or a manual for the wrestlers that has taken about three years and they still – 
man, they struggle to buy into it a little bit, but you know, we're hopefully getting there. Well, I don't know, Dr. Gieselman, you've had the same experience, but I tell all my patients because they're always like, it's so hard because nobody else is, you know, all my friends are just going out to the brewery and eating chicken wings and, you know, all the, you know, and having buffalo cheese and all these things that my body doesn't like because you've told me, you know, dairy is bad or for me or, you know, they're like, so it's really hard for me to go out and the holidays are always, you know, Oh my God, I can't, people look at me like, what's wrong with you? Why aren't you eating like all this, you know, celebration food, which everyone seems to think is good for you, but everyone knows it's not. Uh, and then they're like, I just don't know how I can get that right balance. And I'm like, well, I know. Cause I'm, I mean, Dr. Gieselman, you've been to a CON conference, you know that it's really tough for us to go to a hotel and have them cater to us because we have to tell them you've got to be able to offer, you know, gluten-free, soy-free, dairy-free, because there are members who definitely have these issues. So when you take us out of the realm of the general population who's used to eating stuff that's prepackaged and, you know, they don't, they probably haven't learned well how to cook for themselves because that is a dying nature. You know, no, no longer are you being taught that in high school, so how to prepare yourself, I don't think, at least. Uh, so it becomes a challenge when you're on the fringe, when you're this person who's trying to look at, trying to, to eat a very healthy and clean way. Um, you're definitely one of those outcasts that you just can't do the same things that everybody else can. No, I see that I, a lot. I struggle with that because people are always, you know, telling me I'm such a terrible person to like try to go out with because we got to find a restaurant for chicken. I'm like, I can always have salad with protein on it. I really can. <laughs> yeah. I went to a st- I went to Michael, I went to Michael Jordan steakhouse last night uh, and had a wonderful meal. I, uh, it was just easy. You know, I just got the big 32 ounce. Right. Uh, tea I was good. <laughs> <laughs> had some asparagus. No, I've definitely noticed. I, I've definitely noticed that our athletes, you know, they, their biggest thing is like Drew said, the buy-in. They, because it's information that they have not heard for the last 18 years. They're right. Like, like they do think it's just a calorie in calorie out. And then they don't fully, I don't think they trust it. They just don't trust that if I follow. And the other thing is follow through. I mean, I, you can't just eat good one day and all of a sudden eat like crap the next six and expect it to fall off. Cause I don't know how many times this year I've heard two days before, Hey, Dr. James, I need to lose seven pounds. Well, I win. Well, two days from now. Well, and I would always say, go talk to Coach Sam's. Well, they never want to do that because <laughs> Coach Sam's. They're like, I can't do that. So, I mean, it, it's just those habits. And so, yeah. And then going to conferences, trying to find the food. Like, you know, some of these all-inclusive resorts or some of these places, like, they're not used to having requests like that. It's it's, it's new to them. And so it's just new to a lot of people that they just don't fully understand, you know, where they're, where they're at. So. Which is too bad, in my opinion, because I really think like when people do finally come around to kind of following a protocol that is more clean living, they realize, because this is, I, so of course we just went through the holidays and almost every single patient said to me, well, you know, over the holidays and didn't, I didn't stick to the diet that I should have, but I felt it. And I know, I know, I, I suddenly felt all those symptoms that we've been working on come back. And I was like, oh my God, have I done something wrong? And I laughed. I said, no, we don't expect you to be 100% perfect. We do expect that you're going to celebrate. You're going to do things that are going to harm you. 
But as long as you're more cognizant of, you know, getting, I said, once you got bucked off that horse, just dust off your knees and get right back on that horse because it's the only way you're going to continue to pursue a lifestyle because that's what we are doing here is not just here, take these supplements, they're going to make you better. It's all about, you also have to embrace you know, the right eating and you have to make sure that you're sleeping well and you're doing the right amount of exercise and you're staying hydrated. That's the, that's the circuit that I put all of my patients through. It's not just here's some pills. It's also, now let's talk about your sleep habits. Let's talk about the exercise that you're doing. Are you doing HIIT versus doing yoga and Pilates or something that is a little less taxing on your body? You know, are you uh, hydrating well? And if you're not, we need to deal with that. You know, if you got stress, your body that's stressed doesn't heal. So in my practice, we touch upon, you know, methods to use on how to de-stress that are not going to be, let's go get a, you know, a medication from the doctor. Let's try thinking about mindful breathing techniques or body scans or meditation or, you know, finding something that you really like and just kind of, you know, grounding. I love that, but you can't do that in the wintertime here because it's a little too cold, but sometimes just taking off your shoes and walking through the sand on the lakeside is just one of the things that you just need because your, your body does respond to that sort of energy from the earth to you. It's a really great way of just kind of bringing down your stress naturally without like looking for, you know, a medication or alcohol or CBD, which is the, like the things I hear people talking about all the time. (laughs) Well, we are about out of time, but before we go, um, you know, Dr. Buffard, we have one last question. Dr. James and I have, you know, kind of been asking everybody, if you had a crystal ball, what do you think the next big thing in the field of nutrition that's, that's going to come out will be? Wow. Hmm. So I haven't been to a conference now for a while, so I can't tell you what the next big thing will be because that's always where I find out my next big things. But here's what I do think. I do think that um, we are suddenly starting to make some more waves. I'm, I, I feel it and sense it. You know, when people come to me and I ask them, the first question I ask is, do you know what functional medicine is? I will say half of the people say I have some idea or have worked with someone before. Uh, And so I do think that people are starting to understand that there's a different way to approach things. The other thing I tell everybody when they come in to to see me, I say, we just don't ascribe to the ideal that if you have high blood pressure, it's because you lack blood pressure medication in your system. There's a reason your blood pressure is high, and that's what we want to figure out. And that usually turns on the light bulb. And I think people are starting to become more leery of the ideas that we should just be reaching for a symptom reliever if we're not really going to get the uh, proper guidance from a medical doctor who only wants to spend seven minutes with you because that's what they have to do if they want to keep their practice thriving. So when they come to us, you know, we spend a little bit more time really going over their history and understanding their what, what their concerns are. And then when I can find it in blood work and I can really approach it to them and they'll be like, well, why did my medical doctor tell me this? I'll be like, well, A, he probably didn't test all of these things that I'm doing with you. And B, I don't think he knows. And if you think he knows, you can bring this blood work to him and let's see what he says. Because oftentimes they're looking at laboratory ranges, which, of course, as we know, are much wider than what functional ranges are. And that's the other thing I always tell people. I'm like, you know, when we're looking at a functional range, this is where we want you to be. We don't want to wait until it's outside of the laboratory range. That means we need to do something a little bit more critical. So Mm -hmm. if you're asking me, like, what do I see? I really do think that we're making enough impact on people's lives now that the the ball is starting. 
you know, it's starting. It, it's just that it is so pervasive in our society compared to, you know, things that are marketed, people are marketed to all the time. And that's what I tell people like Diet Coke. You know, I, I always tell them like, it's Diet Coke. So yeah, it's supposed to be good for you, except that it's super sweet. So on your tongue, you get that sensation. It sends a impulse to your brain and your brain's like, can't wait to get the sugar. And then you don't. And when you don't, it's like, wait, where's the sugar? Give me more. And then it creates the crave. And they don't get that. But I'm like, but that's what the food manufacturer knows, that the more Diet Coke you drink, the more you're going to want it. And the more you're taking a false sugar and telling your brain it's here, it's coming, but it's not, it's just going to give you more and more of a craving, which then makes you up for more foods that are sweet. So the consequence is, is you start gaining weight because you're eating and consuming that much more sugar that your body isn't really willing or able to like put away. And it's a concept that most people just don't understand or grasp until you point it out to them. And then when you can show them like, oh, your triglycerides are super high and your insulin is super high. So your body's like, we don't know what to do with all the sugar that you're eating. <laughs> you're, you know, we need to change something about this. And that's when they're like, oh, but my doctor never told me that because the doctor doesn't know what the triglycerides really do, number one. And then they never test for insulin. So why would they know that? So it's, it is going to come around. I think uh, there's so much on the horizon. I'm really looking forward to my next weekend uh, conference because I'm hoping to glean in a little bit more uh, on this testing, uh, very testing. It's actually thrown by Doctors Data uh, as a company, and they've got several different uh, companies that are going to yeah. be there. Um, this weekend that are going to really kind of blow up the ideas of here's a bunch of different testing uh, that we are using and you know, here's how to utilize it best in your practice. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. You know, thank you again for joining us, um, being our guest today, Dr. Buffard. Um, really appreciate, you know, the, the insight and, you know, endless information. From... <laughs> endless stories for sure. Well, uh, I don't call you Dr. Sam's yet because you haven't finished your graduate program, but good luck on the rest yeah. of your graduate program. It sounds <laughs> like you're well on your way and it, it sounds like it's going to be a cakewalk. <laughs> uh, yeah, I don't know if that's true or not, but you know, it sounds like you've made the, a, a good steady choice yeah. and you're certainly working through the last vestiges of it. And Dr. Gieselman, I guess I will see you uh, this fall when we go to the CON conference in Tacoma. Yes, we should see each other. Yes, we should. Soon. Thank you for allowing me the time to kind of give you some of my information. I hope it wasn't too boring. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it was great. All right, gentlemen, have a great day. Stay, enjoy the warm weather. Get out and go out, lay on your back uh, lawn in your shorts. See if you get a nice little suntan and get some vitamin D production happening. Definitely. <laughs> yeah, we will. <laughs> Take care. Take care. Remember, new podcast <laughs> episodes will be released weekly and will drop on Spotify, Apple Podcast, and more every Monday with special behind-the-scenes clips shared on our social channels throughout the week. We appreciate everyone tuning in today. This has been Nutrition on a Mission, a podcast from the ACA Council on Nutrition. Make sure you follow us on Instagram, Nutrition on a Mission Pod, and follow Drew and myself at Iowa Performance Institute for updates on our guest and episode releases. Can't wait for you guys to join us again next time. The views and comments expressed herein are those of the host and guest and do not necessarily reflect those of the ACA Council on Nutrition or the American Chiropractic Association.